My name is Tim Bidall and I serve as the teaching pastor here at the church and I'd ask you to take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians this morning. We're in a series that we've entitled Ready and if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's a, a black Bible in the in the pews there uh, that you can grab and find it on page 989, page 989. If you're in the, the chairs, we have Bibles there as well. You'll find our passage in those paperback Bibles at page 683, page 683. And I got to be honest with you, I'm a little... A little disappointed they didn't have a picture of me and my two cars that I uh, entered into the race. Uh, uh, I thought they were going to mention all the places. Uh, my boys got 57th and 58th place. <clears throat> and uh, I've been told that I should not judge my fatherhood based on my car building uh, prowess. But uh, it was a, uh, amen, that's right, it was a great time uh, to gather and uh, to enjoy. We had a great week this week of, of ministry and it is good to be in the Lord's house uh, to open up God's Word. And for the last uh, first part of this year, we've been looking at uh, the letters of First and Second Thessalonians under the heading of being ready, learning what the Apostle Paul was telling a first century church of new believers who were enduring great affliction and persecution, what it means to be ready, not only in the present, but to be ready as they look forward to the second coming of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And we have been doing that. And as we opened up uh, this uh, second letter last week, we've been learning... Uh, that this life at times will be difficult. But what we're learning from the example of the Thessalonians is that they were a church that was on mission for God. They were serving and honoring God in a way uh, that was allowing the Apostle Paul and his associates and his team to brag about the good things that the Thessalonians were doing in in the life and times uh, that they lived in and how we should be ready to do the same. How we are called to be ready to serve in such a way that that other Christians might be able to brag about us, not for our own sake, not for our own uh, renown, but so that the word of the Lord may be glorified and be received as a life change agent in this world that it is. And Paul has been telling the Thessalonians that amidst their circumstances, their hardship, their struggles, that things will always not always be that way, and that they are to endure these struggles and these difficulties. Because there's a day coming where Christ is going to right every wrong, where Christ is going to wipe away every tear. But what we're going to learn about this morning is is that day is a day that will uh, impact two groups of people very differently. And while it's something that we look forward to with great admiration, it will be a time of great apprehension uh, for the unbeliever. And so this morning, Paul reminds a group of Christ followers to be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. But in doing so, he reminds all unbelievers who were in the midst of the church, as well as for the unbelievers that are in this place today, that you need to be ready. And the whole premise of our entire series has been focused in on the idea that there's a moment in time, there's a time and place that Jesus Christ will say, your life here is done, whether at the moment of death or at the moment of his second coming when he comes through the clouds as the triumphant king of kings. And in that moment it will be too late to make any changes. And so are you ready to meet Christ? And today we're going to learn the two reactions or responses to that. But let's look to the scriptures this morning as our guide and uh, as our teacher. And I'll ask for God's blessing in a moment for our time together. Here's what the word of the Lord says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 starting in verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. It is to this end that we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, 
so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, these are words that stretch the spectrum and span of our emotions. For those who, Lord, have given their lives to you and walk in accordance with your will, this is the day we have been waiting for. And yet we recognize, Lord, in the same day and in the same moment of our celebration, the culmination of our faith and and trust and, and hope in you is a day of utter disaster, of utter despair, of utter uh, reckoning of your wrath and your judgment and your anger towards sin and unrighteousness. Lord, I'm glad you wrote these, le- these words in this letter Because, Lord, I know from human experience, I would never share words like this. From a human perspective, I can wonder of the justice in it all. I can wonder about the fairness of it all. I can wonder about why a good God, a gracious and loving and merciful God, might say, let alone do such things. And yet your word, inspired by you, given to men so that we might Here the heart and mind of God has saw fit to show us a preview of what is coming. Lord, I pray that all that are listening today will take to a place of readiness in their lives. A place of readiness that is obedience to you and your word and your will for all that we do. So Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the truths of this scripture And be our teacher and guide this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There were two occasions growing up that I was concerned about the time of the arrival of my father from work. I would come home from school and on one of two different occasions I would ask the question, when is dad going to be home? The first of the occasions was when, and it was a very rare instance, that something good had taken place that I wanted to announce to my father something that he could be proud of, something that he could could rejoice in, something that would uh, maybe bring a that-a-boy or great job from a father. Every son would want to hear something like that. And, and I'd ask my mom, when's dad going to be home? What time? You know, Is it soon? You know, How much longer? And uh, I want to share this good news with him. I want to experience his presence. I know when he gets home, he's going to be excited, he's going to be happy, and it's going to be a day of blessing for Tim in his relationship with his father. But on far more occasions than I wish to admit, there were moments when my mom would say, not wait till your father gets home, in a joyous and, and loving statement, but in more of, you know, a guttural, uh, um, loud and angry way, she would say, wait till your father gets home. Never knew my mom had such bass in her voice, but in those moments she did, and those were moments where I had wronged uh, something that I had done wrong, or I had done something that my father had told me not to do, uh, or a certain expectation my parents had for me, that there was judgment, there was discipline, uh, there was going to be some level of anger to the, uh, to the um, day. And in those moments, I didn't look with anticipation, but with great anxiety. Uh, those moments were, were just uh, moments that you just found yourself struggling with every moment, knowing that it was not going to end well for you. Well, just like me as a child growing up, anticipating the coming of my father from work, the scriptures make it clear that there is a day coming where Jesus Christ will come back. And in that moment, you will have one of two responses. The first response is you will look with great anticipation, he's coming home. I'm excited. I'm ready. I'm excited about being in his presence. I'm excited about spending time with him. I'm excited about uh, engaging with him in a way that maybe I've never been able to engage with him before. And there are many here today who look to that hope. The Bible talks about that being the blessed hope of the believer. But still there are others, and even in this place today, who find themselves with great doubt, with great question, with great fear and trepidation, that they recognize that they are not prepared for the coming of this person. 
They are not prepared and ready because they have not lived their life in obedience. They have not lived their life uh, under the submission of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but they have lived their life to their own, uh, to the beat of their own drum. They've lived their life in accordance to their own will and not God's. And they hear a passage like this this morning and with fear and trepidation say, yeah, Jesus is coming and I am not ready. And so Paul writes this passage. He writes this passage, listen, not to scare people, as is the human experience when a passage like this is shared. But he shares it because he wants to bring a great amount of relief and encouragement to a group of people who are enduring great hardships. For the believer, the second coming of Jesus Christ should be a time that we look to with great hope and anticipation because that is the day, listen, where Christ will right all the wrongs. Where all of our struggles and all of our sorrows and all of our pains and all of our issues and all of our dysfunctions and all the brokenness and messed up stuff in this world will one day be taken care of because the perfect one, the radiant one, the brilliant one, the glorious one, the awesome one will come and he will write it all once and for all. And because of that, we can have great joy. And we can recognize that in this world, we will have troubles. But take heart, Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And one day, once and for all, he will subdue the world into submission, just as it was in perfection in the Garden of Eden, where man and woman experienced the almighty and glorious presence of God as they walked and talked with their maker. And one day, Jesus Christ will restore and renew and reconcile all things back to himself. And on that day is the day we call the second coming of Jesus Christ. What do we need to know about that day? Before we get into our outline this morning, let me give you a couple characteristics about that day. Uh, First of all, write these down in your outline. They're not there, so just put them somewhere uh, along the margin, if you will. A couple things we need to know about the day that Paul gives us. First of all we are told that it is a specific day. It's a specific day. Notice in verse 10 of our text, it tells us, when he comes on that, help me out, day. Okay? That day. Not any ordinary day. Not uh, at some point. We don't haven't figured it out yet. We're not sure. God says, on that day, he's coming. That phrase, that day, in the original Greek language which this letter was written in, gives the picture of a very specific day. Uh, in our kitchen and the Badal house, we have a calendar. And that's the Badal calendar. And so Amanda, who is the custodian of that calendar, writes down things that are going to happen. And, and every day has got myriads of things, as your calendar does, of events that are going on. But there are unique days, days that are so special and so important that everything else gets taken off that day, right? And there's one singular thing, and she circles it, she stars it. This is a can't-miss day. This is a day that, that you listen, every other activity, every other work-related uh, uh, event, uh, church, whatever, uh, the Badals were busy, right? This is a day that we're not going to miss, This is a day that is important. What I want you to know is when Paul says, on that day, it gives us the picture that God has got a calendar in heaven, and he has marked a day. He has circled it. He has started. He has done whatever to denote that that day is a day that he is going to come. Now, I want you to know, he didn't circle that day two minutes ago. He didn't circle that day uh, when he said that that it was going to be a day when he told the Thessalonians. That day wasn't set up the day that Christ died on the cross. That day wasn't set up on that first Christmas day in Bethlehem. That day wasn't set up when he uh, placed David on the throne in Israel. That day wasn't set during the time of the judges. It wasn't set in the time when, when the people were being entered into the promised land. It wasn't set when Moses uh, got the Israelites out of Egypt. It wasn't set when God made a covenant with Abraham. It wasn't set in the days of garden of the garden of eden that day was set before the foundations of the earth god said i know the end from the beginning and there's a day that christ is going to return as the king of kings and lord of lords it's a specific day notice it involves a special person a special person when he 
comes. Who is the he? When Tim comes? When Pastor Keith comes? No. It says on that day, notice in the text, that it tells us who is going to be revealed. Notice in our our text, it tells us that when he comes on that day glorified, who's he speaking with? Who's going to be marveled? Notice verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Who's coming? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's fulfilling his promise that he made to his disciples over and over again. Listen, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. The last words that Jesus shares to his disciple John during the vision that John would receive in the book of Revelation is the, is the phrase, yes, I am coming back soon. It's one of the last verses of your scriptures. Jesus promised, and we have learned Jesus is utterly faithful to fulfill his promises that he has made. Now, what do we need to know about this specific day where this special person is going to come? What we need to learn is that it's a day that will be set aside so special and so different than any other day we've been a part of. I want you to recognize this morning that Jesus Christ at his second coming will not come back like he did as a baby in Bethlehem. Nor will he come back as a young man, the son of a carpenter in a place called Nazareth. Nor will he come back as one who is confined to time and spaces, to hunger and and rest, He won't have those issues of humanity. He has a resurrected body. He will not come as a suffering servant. He will not come as a crucified Savior. No, listen, on that day, every man, woman, and child will see with their own two eyes and hear with their own two ears that Jesus Christ is the risen Savior, the King of kings, and Lord of lords. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no question. The Bible says he's going to come with his mighty angels. The idea there is the picture is so awesome and so grand that Tim Bedall does not have words in his finite vocabulary to speak of the utter greatness that is going to take place. Now, we have seen in our world great arrivals. In our day, I've seen video clippings. I'm not old enough to, to have been a part of it. But the arrivals of great artists and bands who can forget when the Beatles landed at New York airport and the great crowds of young especially young women screaming and cheering their love and affection for these men from Great Britain how about the the arrival of Elvis Presley in his first major TV uh, uh, performance They said it took them uh, almost two and a half minutes during live television to quiet the crowd of young, adoring fans to allow him to be able to even be heard to play his music. Wow, what an experience. We've seen ticker tape parades for generals and our troops after vanquishing foes. And we sit back with great marveling and say, what an amazing thing. We have seen inaugural celebrations and ceremonies for presidents that have brought grown men to tears and to great moments of adulation. We look forward in the month of October when the 2016 Cubs will bring a World Series. Okay? Let me tell you something, none of that ever will compare to what is going to happen on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's nothing to compare to. What a day. What a moment. I might go as far to say second only, listen to me, second only to the moment when out of the power of the word, God created the universe... There is not a moment in time that will be grander and greater and more spectacular than the day that we see Jesus Christ coming through the clouds. It's a specific day. 
It involves a special person. Write this last thing down. It is a day of stark contrast. Stark contrast. Last Monday, I see a show of hands. How many of you watched with great excitement the championship game of the NCAA tournament? See a show of hands. It's okay. It's not sinful. Okay? Okay? What a game. What an absolute, they say it's the game of the ages. It will go down, our, our, our posterity will watch us on ESPN 45, right? You know, by then there'll be that many ESPN channels. And they'll watch this game over and over again as one of the great games. You who didn't see it, what a spectacular game. Look to the screen. Uh, I had NC, uh, North Carolina winning the championship. My boys had a pool with me, and I had them winning the championship. And I was filled with great expectation and, and great joy when my friend, number five, with 6.8 seconds, puts up one of the oddest-looking three-point shots, and he sinks it. I erupted off of my couch. And there's not a lot that gets me out of the couch. I was filled with joy. My team was going to win. I get to pick what restaurant the Badal family goes out to next. I was filled with great joy. And then in a matter of less than six seconds, everything changes. Jenkins, who I don't believe is loved by God, puts up a prayer and he sinks it. Listen to me, it's so spectacular. He, he shot that shot with 0.6 seconds left. By the time it had hit the bottom of the nylon net, it was all zeros. And in that moment, we know what happened. Villanova celebrated. They celebrated. They celebrated like Victor should, right? They weren't supposed to win. They weren't uh, uh, the favorite to win, but they did. And they celebrated like Victor should, with great adulation, great excitement, with great relief and pride in their heart. We did it. We are the victors. But in any game, there's always a loser. And this picture was done by a Time Magazine uh, individual in the locker room. The Time Magazine person, I didn't share this in the first service, said that young player didn't move from that position for 25 minutes. Brokenhearted, full of regret, angry, confused, disappointed, feeling like all that hard work was for naught. I'm here to tell you in the most basic of terms that on the day of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there will be those two responses in an infinite kind of way. That's a basketball game. That's nothing in comparison to what we're talking about. And yet it shows us the realm of emotions we have for a silly game. And I get it was important to those young guys. It was important to me. But it pales in comparison. Listen, those guys have now in many ways moved on. They're filled with joy this morning. They're enjoying the good life that God has given them. But that will not be the case on that day. It's a day of stark contrast. A day of celebration for the victors and a day of great calamity for those who don't know Jesus. On that day, just so you know, we who follow Jesus Christ, who have been um, submissive to the call of God in our lives, who have bowed the knee to Jesus and asked for his salvation, will experience three things in that moment that I don't want you to miss we will experience in one singular moment the fullness of our salvation. I know we don't get that. I wrote that down. I said, what does that mean? I don't know, but it's going to be glorious. Number two, we will be reunited with believers of all places and all times. I've catered a lot of pretty crazy events, pretty awesome events in my day, and nothing will compare to the reunion and celebration that will take place. And number three, we will become like Christ in that singular moment because we will be given our resurrected bodies. That is why Titus says this is the blessed hope. This is why we live according to the calling of God. It doesn't make us better in this world. It doesn't make our lives easier in this world. The reason why we are followers of Jesus Christ is because we singularly believe in the promise that Jesus Christ is coming back and we better be ready. 
But that's not true for all. Paul spells out very clearly two responses. Let's deal with the first one. It's an ugly one. The fateful moment of those who rebel from God. Rebel against God. This passage, listen to me, is a heartbreaking passage for me to preach. I want to make it clear that I do not do a touchdown dance. I do not do a celebration. I stop with utter terror and somberness in my heart as I preach the contents of what this point unveils. I don't want to preach this because I recognize it's true. But if I want to desire to be faithful to the teaching of all of Scripture, then I must be willing to teach all of it, even the hard stuff. Even the heartbreaking passages that from a human standpoint can make even a pastor question the goodness of God's plan. As I read words that speak of miserable judgment and suffering for millions and myriads of people who will experience such horrors on that day. Paul makes it clear, the Thessalonians in the first century and for us today, that there's a day that Jesus Christ will return. And on that day for the unbeliever, Paul says it will be a time of unspeakable pain and sorrow to a great number of people. Who are these people? Notice in the passage, the passage says that this will happen to those, verse 8, who do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. While it seems as if Paul is sharing two groups of people who will be in trouble on that day, it is clearly one group of people with two problems. And Paul says, okay, this one group of people are people who do not, they are people who are known for two things. They do not know God, and they do not obey the truth of the gospel. So, let's learn about these people. First of all, those who do not know God. Let's start there. Who are they? They are every person who has never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. Jesus, praying to his Father in John 17, said this, that knowing God is the key. He put it this way. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the one and true God, and know me, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, the the difference between our response of being joyful or sorrowful is bound up in this idea, do you know Christ? Do you know him? Well now, how can they not know him? The book of Romans tells us that it's the creation that shows us the invisible qualities of an, or sorry, the, the invisible qualities of an invisible God. And so any person, any man, woman, or child this morning can look to creation and learn about things and know things about God that are invisible to us. How can we know that God is powerful? Well, creation shows us that. We're pretty technologically advanced as a group of people. And what our telescope, our farthest reaching telescope can tell us is there's a whole lot more of space than what we can see into. So every time we get a newer telescope that shows us more and more of this immense galaxies that we live in, all we do is we look farther into space and say, we haven't even scratched the surface of the created universe. Then we get telescopes, I'm sorry, microscopes. And microscopes don't do what telescopes do. They don't reach out to the galaxies. They allow us to peer in to the things that are so small that we can't even, with a human eye, see. And it shows us things that are going on unbeknownst to us. We see on a very organic and molecular level what's taking place. And here's what we learn. The same thing we learn from the galaxies. We learn something amazing, that there's a whole lot going on that we never had any idea that was. We're doing GNA genome testing that is getting to the very fabric, breaking down the very essence of us as created beings. And what we're learning is, is we are far more advanced than we would have ever thought 15, 20 years ago. And all of that should point, listen to me, 
All of that should point to the idea of the existence of God. But the world says, listen, that takes too much faith. That may take too much uh, uh, trust and blind trust at that to believe in a God that might create a universe like that. And so this is what we do. Listen to the idiocy of this. And I don't mean to be rude or, or coarse in this, okay? But, but if you take an all-powerful being, God, out of the equation, this is what you believe. And I'm no scientist, but this is what I've come to this point. When you are told that God is not involved in this, what you say is the following. Out of nothing, follow this, this is very deep. Out of nothing came something. And that something ran into something else. Okay? So remember, out of nothing, there's nothing, became something. That something banged into something else. Let me rephrase so you got it in your remedial classes. Nothing became something that ran into something else and they banged real hard together. You still don't get it, do you? Nothing, nothing. So listen, kids in your science class, when they say the theory of evolution works, okay, here's your question. How does something come out of nothing? Explain that. You're not getting it. Something can't come out of nothing, amen? Okay, so you got it. It makes no sense. Those two somethings that came out of nothing banged together, and after billions of years, those particles of what banged together are sitting in this pew right now. Let me tell you something. It takes more faith to believe that than it does that there's an all-powerful being, okay, that made you. It created you in your mother's womb and placed you on a, a, a ball of rock, next to a flaming star close enough that gives you heat far enough that it doesn't burn you up, that gives you just enough gravity, listen, just enough gravity to hold your carcass on this earth. You don't fly off into space. That gives you just enough water, just enough air, that forces the plants to give away to, to eat up just enough carbon dioxide. Your carbon dioxide feeds them. The oxygen they give feeds you. And in that equal, perfect little uh, ecosystem, God has said this is where human beings, plant and animal life, are going to dwell. I'm no scientist, and I'm doing a disservice to this, but I can tell you with my minimal education, I can assure you that there is a God in the universe. And your job and my job is to know him. Romans 1 says that although they knew God, they did not glory in God or believe him something to be worshipped. Instead, in exchange of worshipping the real and true and living God, they went and worshipped things like reptiles and crawling things and animals and human beings. And so who is a part of this destructive moment? Every human being that has said, yeah, there's a God, but I'm him. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what makes me feel good, what deems well for me, instead of worshiping the God of the universe. Notice the second side of this group of people are those who rebel against the gospel. Those who rebel against the gospel are those who squelch the gospel, who, who squelch those who proclaim the gospel, who hinder its work in the lives of people. It is those who make the lives of Christians difficult, that seek to suppress it, to hinder its spread, to harm its, its messengers. And God says that those who not only don't know the gospel, but those who rebel against it will find themselves with greater judgment, greater guilt, a hotter hell, and a severer punishment. Because not only have they turned away from the truth and suppressed the truth that there's a God, but they have sought fit to use their time on this earth to make sure no one else believes in it as well. And God says, in that moment, on that day, they will experience, notice what the text says in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, they will experience inflicting vengeance from the Lord. Now right away, 
you hear that and your dear friend or your spouse or your mother or your uncle or your aunt or your child or your friend or your coworker comes to mind and you say, come on, Tim, they're pretty great people. They do wonderful things. Maybe they don't know God because God hasn't revealed himself as clearly as he should have. Maybe they've rebelled against God because that's all they know. Maybe they came from a bad upbringing or, or, or all of that. And, and what happens is, is we elevate man and his goodness and we devalue God and his righteousness. And I will tell you, when you elevate man and devalue God, you will never come to a good spot. And right away, you want to know when you come to that? You come to that when you ask the question, is it fair? Is this fair? How can this be right? How can this be good? How can a good and merciful God say such things, let alone do such things, to wonderful humanity? Now what people will do right away when the fairness question comes up is one of of a couple things. Number one, they will uh, abandon such passages and promote the idea that God's love keeps God from exacting such justice and judgment. He's a loving God. He can't do that. Second, what people will do, and this is the more popular thing to do, is not to change your beliefs, but to skip passages altogether that talk about this. Because this, this angers people. This hurts people's feelings. This, this throws people in their place. And, and, and this can't be good. There's got to be an, an, another answer to this. God, God can't mean this. Well, I don't know how else to interpret this passage. It's very clear cut and straightforward. And it seems as if God knows our struggles. Notice what he says in verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Righteous judgment important phrase there notice in verse 6 god considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you god says it's right god says it's fair now how can it be why would god do such terrible things to people that he created the answer is because they live in a constant and continual state of rebellion God has given so much to humanity. God has blessed us as a people, both believers and non-believers alike. God has blessed us with a capacity to live, to breathe, to move, to experience emotions like joy and happiness and love. He's given us companionship and relationships with others. He's given us all that we need, and he says that his mercies are new every morning. Not just to the believers, but the Bible says that he places, he gives believers both the rain and the sun on both alike. Even to the point that, listen, sometimes we look with great yearning at the blessings God has given an unbeliever around us. The joys that they give. And all the while, the unbelieving world turns its back on God and goes about life as if he does not exist. And if he does exist, they tell him through their actions and their responses that they want nothing to do with him, that their presence, that his presence in their life is a burden and something that they would rather not have. So what does God do? If you wonder if it's fair, let me share this with you. Hell is exactly what the unbeliever has wanted their entire life. An existence that is devoid of the presence of God. So what does God do in his love? He gives that person what they've wanted during their earthly life. You want to live life You want to have your existence apart from me, God says to the sinner? Then I will give it to you in a place called hell. Where you will not experience me. Where you will not experience my goodness. And notice that is a fearful, a fearful response. As if it wasn't enough for our faint hearts, Paul continues by explaining 
that they will endure great struggles. I'm glad Paul's not comprehensive because I don't think if he shared any more in this text, I would ever preach this passage. It is heartbreaking to preach a passage like this. I have friends. I have loved ones. I have employees. I have people that are near and dear in my life who are only expecting this type of return from Christ. And it breaks my heart. Paul says two things about the fear that should run in the hearts and minds of unbelievers. First of all, he speaks of the ruin. Paul says in verse 9, they're going to suffer destruction. Destruction. The idea of destruction is not that it is the end of one's existence. It is not annihilation. But that word destruction speaks of the uh, ending of all second chances. The idea here is on that moment, on that day, it will be too late. Let me point, put it this way. As long as there's time on the clock, there's a time for a second chance. In basketball terms, if you watch a basketball game, at some point the victor before the game is over has shown their supremacy, that there's too many points to be overcome, and that the loser finds it too late in the game. And at that moment, the commentator or announcer will say, after the shot is made, or maybe it's a free throw, or something has taken place, you can put the nail in the coffin. That's it. It's over. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the nail in the coffin. It is too late. At the second coming of Christ, there will be no more redos, no miraculous comebacks, no marvelous changes. It's game over. And Paul says, when the game's over, it will mean rejection. Notice in the text. It says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Paul says, you will be rejected. Paul says, hell is the total and utter rejection from the presence of God. C.S. Lewis called it the great divorce. He called it the horrific isolation from all that is good and wholesome in this world and is, and one who is rejected once and for all, once and for all from the God who created them and made them for a purpose. I'm sorry, rock and roll fans. It is not a place, hell is not a place where there's a party where your friends will be there. They may be there, but you will be so far isolated that you will never see of them, hear of them, or experience anything from them. And even greater than that, you will not experience the presence of Almighty God in your life. You think life's bad now? At least you have the presence of God going on right now. Jesus said that this would be a place of utter weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of utter desolation and despair. And it will be that way forever. Notice it's final. Paul says it's eternal. I'm about to celebrate my 40th birthday, just a point of reference. It happens this week. I know you probably have work off because of it. I was talking to my son Joshua this morning. He says, dad, it's your birthday week. Are you excited? I said, yeah. He says, you're going to be 40. I said, I know. He said, that's old. I said, I know. He says, do you even remember? He says, that's so long ago. Do you even remember being a kid? I said, yeah, barely. Dementia's taking over. But yes, it's, I can remember that. And let me tell you something. In that moment, I, I penciled some things on my, on my notes. You know what? 40 is a long time. But listen, it's nothing in comparison to eternity. And so here is, here is the great proposal that I have for you this morning. You have got an option on the table. In your 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 year experience on this earth, if whatever God gives you, and we don't know what God's going to give us. I had a brother die at the age of 16. I had a grandfather who died in his mid-90s. We don't know what we'll be given. And in that moment, we have a decision to make. While there's breath in our lungs, will I bow the knee to Jesus in this short, what is almost a just twinkle of time that God has given me on this earth? Will I bow the knee and submit to him and put place my life in accordance to his will and word for a short season to experience an eternity of salvation and joy and blessing with him in heaven? 
Or will I rebel against him in the small little time I have and because of that experience torment and judgment and sorrow and pain and and great despair and isolation away from the presence of God and all that is good and right and holy in this world so that I can live it up for a handful of weekends on this earth. That's what's on the table. God says, give me your life now and you'll be blessed in the life to come. The devil says, give me your life now, live it up, and then I'll own you in hell. It's final. Jesus put it this way, I can't, so Jesus does a better job. Matthew ten twenty eight. Jesus said, fear him who can destroy the soul and your body in hell. It will be a t- time and place where we will be tormented in body and soul. Matthew twenty five forty six. write this passage down. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Revelation 14 tells, if anyone worships the beast, the image, receives a mark on his forehead, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger. And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, where there is no rest, day or night. Mark 9.43 It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell in the unquenchable fire. Mark 9.47 It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two than to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. In Hebrews 10.31 It is a fearful and dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So let me just stop. I want you to know my second point's very short. Okay? It's very short. Let me just stop here and ask you the question, do you know Jesus this morning? Do you know Jesus? You have just heard, not my words, but God's words, that God says there's a day coming where either you will find rest and relief and joy and contentment because you bowed the knee to Jesus. Not because you went to Village Bible Church or you sat under some teaching or your wife's a believer or your kids are believers or your parents are believers or, or that you give to the church. None of that will do. What Jesus says is, will you obey the gospel? Bow the knee in submission to me. Do as I've said and live your life in accordance to my will and to my word. Will you do that? Or will you continue to live for self? And on that day, learn that it's too late. If you don't know what that day means for you, then it's probably bad news. If you don't have an assurance of what that day will bring, then you're probably not a follower of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is telling you, is screaming in your heart right now, bow the knee to Jesus. It can happen where you're sitting, where you pray a prayer and say, Lord, I give you my life. Lord, I repent of my sins. I'm tired of living this life on my own. I will live it for you. And if you're at a place where you are making that decision, we want to know it. We want to help you in that process. We want to share more of Scripture with you so you can know without a shadow of a doubt that when Christ comes in the clouds or you meet him on your deathbed, that in that moment you will be filled with great contentment, joy, and peace because you will see the one who saved you from your sins. Because if you're not, you will experience the greatest torment and turmoil and struggle that you will ever know. And here's the problem. It won't happen for a moment. It will happen for all of eternity. Get right with God this morning. Let me finish with just a couple things. There's a hopeful future for those who have been redeemed by God. For those who have been redeemed. 
I'm not going to take a long time with this because we, we celebrate this all the time, right? As Christians, this is something we celebrate and, and we see and, and we rejoice in. And, and so this is what Paul says, that on that day for Christians, listen, it will be a day of great celebration. I can't fathom it. I don't know how we can celebrate with such great joy knowing there are people that are hurting in such amazing ways. But then I go back to the NCAA championship. Listen to me. I am sure there was great concern and consolation the Villanova team had for the broken-hearted North Carolina team, right? Michael Jordan cried at the end of the game. I mean, it was heartbreaking. But the celebration was so great and so awesome that it paled in comparison of any feeling of consolation. And in that moment, we will be celebrating in such a great way that the consolation for the loved ones and the broken things that have happened and the rebellion that has taken place will be a distant memory because we will see Jesus in that moment. And in that moment, Jesus tells us three things that will take place. I'll tell you them quickly. Number one, there will be relief from our enemies. Paul assures the Thessalonians God's going to even the score. He's going to repay with affliction those who afflict us, grant relief to those who have been afflicted. It's encouraging to know that every mockery, every joke, every time that we have been told we are idiotic for believing such things will be done. It'll be over. God will not forget the terrible deeds that are done to believers. Paul tells the Thessalonians, all this conflict, all this affliction, all this struggle, God hasn't forgotten. If you go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., you will hear, as you walk into the museum exhibit hall, you will hear first and foremost the screams and anguish of the people who were entering into concentration camps and entering into the uh, torture chambers. And, and as a result of that, why would they do that? Why would you hear these gut-wrenching cries of men, women, and children? Because the people who made the museum don't want you to forget the heinous acts that were done. And they want you to hear the anguish and the sorrow and the pain. And what God is telling us in this passage is that God hears the cries of the righteous. And so we heard this a uh, couple weeks ago that a, a, a priest, a Catholic priest, giving his life to the mission of God, on Good Friday, was crucified by ISIS terrorists. The ISIS propaganda said he cried, in essence, in American vernacular, like a sissy girl as he was nailed to a cross. Let me tell you something. They may have thought that they won the war, but on the day of the second coming of Jesus Christ, they will pay a dear price for what they did to a righteous and humble man. Vengeance is not ours, the Bible says. It's the Lord's. And he will repay. And he will relieve the anguish of his people. That word there, relief, is the Greek word anison. I don't know if it's still around, but there used to be a pain reliever called anison. Remember that? The second coming of Jesus Christ is the once and for all painkiller for all Christians. It spells relief. Number two, it will be a rest from our struggle or sorrow. Verse 10, on that day, Christ will be made complete with us and in us. That means we come to the finish line. We receive that which we were made for. That we will receive in ourselves the perfect and resurrected bodies where we will experience total bliss with God in one another. Forever we will live in a time and a space where there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more hunger, no more struggle, no more uh, miserableness. That old order of things will be gone, and we will be the full recipients of the grace of the gracious and loving God of the universe. Finally, it will be a reward for our faith. On that day, we will be glorified. Listen, what that means is we will be vindicated. I know some of you receive great sorrow and pain because you go to a family gathering and you start talking about Jesus and your family mocks you. What are you believing? Are you kidding me? You're into that old wives' tales and all that weirdo stuff. 
or you share at work the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and they mock you and, and curse at you for this. Get this garbage out of here. Man, you're loony, you Bible banger. All those terms that we hear from people, the looks that we get, that we are the crazies. On that day, Christ will be magnified in us. We will stand with our heads held high because on that day, it will not us, it will not be us who will be deemed as foolish, as crazies, as weirdos, as the foolhearted or the simple-minded. But on that day, the world will see. Listen, by God's grace, and I say this with no boasting, we were right. We were right. Now what should that compel us to do? Let me close with this. It should change the way we go to work tomorrow. It should change the way we go to school tomorrow. It should change the way we interact with our neighbor. It should change the way that we interact with our strangers. It should change the way that we interact with those we love. It should change the way we interact with those we hate. It should change the way that we interact with those who are nice to us and those who bring great harm to us. Why? Because there's a day coming when the wrath and indignation of the most powerful God of the universe will come down on men and women who do not know him or obey the gospel. And the only, listen to me, the only antidote to that problem is the gospel being unleashed into the lives of sinners so that they can be transformed into the newness of Christ. So go to work remembering there's a day on God's calendar and I better be living like him. Not only so that when he comes, he might find faith in Timbadal's life on that day. Lord, help me if on that day, that moment, that no one knows the hour, that on that moment, in that moment, he would not find me living for self, but for living for the Savior. Likewise, that on that day, listen, when every man, woman, and child looks to the coming of Jesus Christ, and in their horror says, he's the one that they might be able to say in their heart, that's what Tim was talking about. And I didn't listen. And I pushed him away. And I rebelled against that message. And I fought tooth and nail against that. And I mocked that. And I ridiculed that. The Bible says in that moment, at that time, if we have done what we're called to, we can stand with our heads held high knowing we did what we were supposed to. But might I add this morning that many of us will have our heads down in despair because we will have loved ones who never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ come from our lips. And they'll say, but you knew! And you never told me. You never shared it with me. And for that, every ounce of our ease, every ounce of our comfort should be addressed where we know that we've got a mission and purpose in this life. The day's coming. Are you ready? Are you sharing it with others? My hope and prayer this morning is that we'd be challenged by a text from God himself that would prepare us in that way. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word, and it's a hard word. And I can tell from the faces of those in this place, just as in the first service, that these are hard things. No doubt many of us have friends and loved ones who don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ or who have turned away from the gospel. And Lord, we recognize that the sinful heart is deceitful. Lord, we're going to learn next week that you have sent a strong delusion upon these people because of their sinfulness. And Lord, we know that that delusion can only be rectified by the gospel of you sending your son to die on our behalf that we might be the righteousness in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray again, as I've shared already, if there's someone who does not know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is not in a relationship with Christ, that they would stop in their place today and would not leave this place without getting uh, a full understanding and making a full confession that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And for those who are followers of you, Lord, I pray that you would instill in us a hunger and a thirst to share the good news of Jesus Christ, knowing you have promised that you're coming back, and at that moment, it will be too late.
Lord, I'm thankful for this hope. And yet with this hope comes great responsibility. And I pray that as believers, we will be equal to the task that you have given us. So Lord, let us see that the harvest is, the fields are white for harvest, ready for your taking. And Lord, let us cultivate and plant in areas that may not be ready. So that Lord, we can stand with our heads held high at your coming, that we did all that we needed to, all that you called us to, in being faithful to the purpose you had for your believers here on earth. Now, Lord, let us go from this place. Let us fellowship with one another. Let us live with the reality that you're coming back and the hope that that instills. Thank you for the hard words, Lord. We know you love us because you share the truth with us, even when it hurts. And give us the needed abilities and giftings to respond in a way that would honor you. We thank you and praise you for all that you've done in this service and pray that you've been glorified through it all. And it's in your son, Jesus Christ's name, we pray. Amen.